But what I wanted to talk about today is something that I've been learning and growing in. So when I moved up to Reading, um, I was actually working for a thing called Jesus Culture. I don't know if you know who those guys are, but I worked with them for about four years, and I wrote most of their curriculum for them, and I, I also started another thing called Culture Project, which was a, a basically a 40-year mentoring strategy to connect leaders in high levels of the different spheres of society with emerging leaders from, from college age and uh, early careers age to kind of accelerate their development so that we can actually be more influential within the different spheres of society. And so I worked on that for a season, but then they decided to plant a church. And when they decided to go, my wife and I went over to look for a house and we just didn't feel like we were supposed to go. So we stayed in Reading and, and that's when I started this thing called Pastors Coach. So I've been coaching pastors now around the world and it's been pretty fun. You know, because, uh, you know, most of the churches that we're dealing with, uh, in other words, as a pastor, I was a pastor in San Francisco for 33 years. And you learn a lot, you know. And I learned probably more from my failures than, than I ever learned from my success. In fact, one of my dear friends, Robert Scott, is here. And Robert was one of our elders for, gosh, 25 years or something like that. And, uh, you know, we went up and down a lot. You know, we had some pretty glorious seasons of great revival and outpouring. And then we've had some pretty challenging seasons where, you know, we hit brick walls and, you know, got, got bruised a little bit. And, and so, and it's weird how it works because we learn a lot on both sides of the equation. The stuff we go through that's glorious and where, you know, it seems like the wind is in our sails and we just can't do anything wrong. We've had seasons like that. But then I've also had seasons where it seems like I couldn't get it right. And so don't despise the difficult times in your life, you guys, because some of my greatest growth and learning has come out of those seasons. And I'm so blessed to be able to stand in front of you after, what, 42 years of serving Jesus and, um, and really more than 40 years in full-time ministry. And I just feel so blessed to be able to be counted among the saints and to be um, connected to Jesus. And I feel like the connection is even growing. You, know, I, you wouldn't think, you know, it's like a, after so many years, but God's still, there's still unpacking mysteries of his beauty and his goodness and his kindness and his, his graciousness to me just as a person, as a son, you know. So anyway, what I want to talk to you about is something, a theme that's been in my heart over this last season. How do we do church as a family? Because as I've been coaching churches, I've been getting a really interesting view. I've been in Europe. I've been in Latin America. I've been you know, down, down under. <laughs> I've been in a number of different places. I've been to India and Thailand. I've been to Israel. You know, just different places around the world, South Africa, checking out the church. Like, what is the church about? What are we doing? And I've come to this interesting understanding that, that God has a way of doing church that is increasingly relevant for the times that we are entering into. That we are in a season where I believe God wants to move in a profound and powerful way. I believe that we are on the verge of another great ingathering of souls. I believe that, you know, the last big one we had was probably the Jesus movement in the late 60s, probably into about mid-70s, where God moved and hundreds of thousands of young people came to Christ. Mostly young people, actually, there were older people that came to Christ as well. But in every revival, if you look at revival history, the majority of people that actually get swept up and come to the Lord in a revival, about 75% are under 25 years old. And that's one of the reasons I love the fact that you're staying glued to the campus, because I believe that there is not a single more strategic place to be ministering on behalf of Jesus than the college campus. And there's probably not a single college campus in the world that is 
superior to this one in terms of its global influence. So God has placed you in an incredibly significant place. Now, I know many of you have graduated. Some of you have gone on into other kinds of studies or career, and, and, and I celebrate that as well. But I think it's so, to me, so significant that God keeps you kind of glued here because I believe that it, it's a key place of, of significant influence. But I believe that we are on the verge of a great ingathering. And the problem is, is that very few of us are doing the math on it. Like, in other words, it's exciting to hear the prophecies about a billion soul harvest. And we say, yeah, a billion souls. Well, have you done the math? Okay, a billion souls is a crazy thing. We're talking about basically one-seventh of the world's population coming to Christ. We're talking about basically 15%. So if, what's, what's the population of Berkeley right now? About 200,000? Something like that. Okay, well, let's just say it is. Okay, the, the Bay Area is 10 million in the nine, nine, nine and a half counties, 10 counties. I mean, we've got a massive population center, one of the most influential areas in the entire planet. You know, we have Silicon Valley here. We have Napa. We have, you know, the, San Francisco is a people movement generator. You know, we've, you know, we've got this incredible place that God has put us. It's one of the most influential. 10 million people, what's 15%? There must be a mathematician in the room, right? Yeah. 1.5 million? Okay, if 1.5 million people come to Christ in the next 10 years, can we handle it? I mean, if that many babies are born into the kingdom, or think about Berkeley, if it's 200,000 people, and let's say that, that 30,000 come to Jesus, 15%. And that's a massive thing. If you think of Berkeley, like how many pews are there in Berkeley? How many seats in how many auditoriums to be able to handle? You know, it's just, and then, and then think about it from this angle. If you think about the angle of, how many ministers does it take to care for 30,000 new believers in your city? Okay, because most churches, they actually supply full-time pastors at a one per hundred ratio. So if you think of a billion souls, you know, divided by <laughs> a one per hundred ratio, you know, you're talking about needing, basically, how many would that be? A billion? It would be 10 million, 10 million new pastors to pastor a billion soul harvest. Okay, like I get to teach at a school called Bethel School, and it, it, you know, okay, listen to this. If we had a thousand Bethel schools turning out a thousand graduates every year, and again, a thousand graduates that are, that are pastor ready is a pretty big hefty thing. Okay, if we had a thousand schools turning out a thousand graduates every year for 10 years, we'd have 10 million new pastors. It's huge. In fact, I believe it's impossible. That's why I believe the second thing that's most important needs to happen. And that is, I believe that we have to rediscover the priesthood of every believer. Do you guys realize that we are on the 500th year anniversary of what was called the Protestant Reformation? Do you guys understand that? It's actually almost exactly, it was, it was October 31st, 500 years ago. 1517 when Martin Luther decided enough and he wrote out 95 statements of correction to the church the Catholic church at that time and he there's some dispute as to whether he actually nailed them on the church door but he certainly sent them to his bishop and there were three primary truths that were discovered at that time okay number one was the authority of scripture 
because right now the authority had transferred over to the popes and the bishops and basically so much garbage was flowing into the church because it was not based on the word of God. And so he basically reasserted the fact that the scripture alone is our authority. The second point that he reasserted is the fact that salvation comes by faith alone. You, there's no money you can give. There's no uh, prayers you can utter. There's, you know, there's no, that nothing can produce salvation except faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But there was a third point. And those other two we've actually done a pretty good job on. But the third point we kind of failed in. And that third point was the rediscovery of the priesthood of every believer. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you are what the Bible calls a priest. And the problem is, is that the church had generated a priesthood that relegated everybody else to a, a laity position. In other words, you're not a priest, you're, you're a spectator. You're a receiver, you're somebody that we pour into. Okay, so this, this dynamic that occurred in the church up to that point was scandalous. It was, it was very much against the scripture. So Martin Luther said, no, every believer is a priest. But there was a problem. They never changed the way they did church. So, basically, prior to the Protestant Reformation, you know, five or six people did all the ministry, and everybody else just watched. After the Protestant Reformation, five or six people did all the ministry, and everybody just watched. And that pretty much continued on until about mid-century, last, 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 uh, last millennium, you know, or last century. That all of a sudden, this reawakening understanding of the priesthood of every believer started to happen. And people started to think about it more. And one of the things that emerged from that was what, what could be called a small group movement. You know, people doing small groups. And, and because they were trying to figure out how to activate every single member effectively. And over the last maybe, I don't know, 50 years or so, there's been a growing awareness of the power of discipleship, the need for discipleship, and then there's been different systems that have been developed to try to activate every member in a powerful way. Okay, and this is all introductory to what we're going to be talking about today, which is doing church as a family. Because I believe that there are three kinds of churches in the world, and so the first slide we can put up is, <laughs> I believe that there's three kinds of churches in the world, and they are fantasy, factory, and family. Okay, now there's many different subcategories of those kinds of churches, but let's talk about each of these for just a moment as we get started. Okay, I, I was a, a disciple of a man named John Wimber. I don't know how many of you know who John Wimber was. He passed away in 1997, but John Wimber was actually um, one of the game changers for the body of Christ. In other words, if you look at how we worship the Lord now, we didn't have any worship tonight, but if you, you know, the, having a band lead in worship the way that we normally do, it probably wouldn't be quite the same except Wimber developed the whole worship dynamic. You know, the issue that every one of us can pray for the sick and actually see some results and get words of knowledge and hear the voice of God, that, that kind of skill was relegated to the, to the guy with the white patent leather shoes and the big puffy hair. You know what I mean? Most of us didn't know how to do that stuff until Wimber came along and said, hey, everybody gets to play. You know, he started actually introducing these concepts. The whole small group movement became popularized through Wimber. In fact, Wimber was the founder, originally before he got saved, he was the founder of a band called the Righteous Brothers. I don't know if you knew that. You never close your eyes anymore. Yeah, so you've lost that love and feeling. Okay, he actually um, left the band right before that song was published, but he was the one who pulled the whole band together and made it happen. He was a lounge lizard. <laughs> 
Okay. But he was not saved. And so he came to the Lord just right around the time, 1964, I believe it was. And in the process of coming to the Lord, he just had a radical conversion. And so over the next three years, he personally led over lunch tables 3,000 people to Christ. Not in big meetings where everybody, you know, every head bowed, every eye closed. I mean, it was actually face-to-face over lunch tables he led that many people to Christ. And then he went through Bible school, took over the church. It was actually an evangelical Quaker church. He took over the church, and the church, like, I think tripled in size. And then a, a professor named Peter Wagner saw that and said, John, we need your help. Because they were just forming a thing called the Fuller Institute of Church Growth. And they were just beginning to try to figure out how can we grow churches in the modern world. And so he asked John Wimber, and John Wimber agreed to be the president. So he was the president of that institute for about five years. And during that time, he and Peter Wagner toured the world interviewing churches. And they went all up and down the churches and, you know, big churches, small churches, denominational churches, non-denominational, charismatic, evangelical. He went through all the different churches, different nations, different cultures. And they came up with a set of understandings that undergirded the counsel they began to give as the Fuller Institute of Church Growth. Now, what's interesting about this is that... uh, when Wimber came back from all this study, like four or five years of doing all these interviews and, and uh, surveys and so forth, he came to the conclusion that most churches are playing basketball without a ball and without a hoop. <laughs> Can you imagine playing basketball without a ball, without a hoop? It's like, okay, come on, come on, you know, swish. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Yeah, no, you didn't. Whoa, I'm trapped. Um, but the idea is, is that how do you know if you're scoring if there's no ball and there's no hoop? Well, of course, we say stuff like, well, something happened in the heavenlies, right? (laughs) But I think that the kingdom of God was always meant to be a measurable reality. And to some extent, we had kind of lost that in the name of what some, or I would call, fantasy church. It's basketball without a ball, without a hoop. It's like we're going through the motions of church, but we're not actually achieving the results that Jesus achieved and that he asked us to achieve. And so that's kind of the first kind of church. And in fact, as I've been, I think in the last four years, I've, I mean, over the, over the decades, I've coached probably about maybe four or 500 churches. But in the last recent history, maybe four or five years, I've coached about 200 churches. And I would say a fair percentage of them are doing fantasy church, where they exist to continue to exist where they're going through motions, they're holding services, they're spending money, they're doing it, but they're not actually winning the game. And again, I'm not, you know, I I know there's many reasons for that, and I've been a pastor long enough to know that it doesn't always work the way you want it to. So again, I'm not putting anybody down, I'm just saying there's got to be a better way. Okay, but let me just describe Fantasy Church. Fantasy Church is vision without evaluation. We're going to win the city of Berkeley, and we're going to see, you know, thousands come to Christ. And that's awesome, and I, I want us to have vision. I believe vision is such an important attribute for every church. However, we get to a place where sometimes it rings hollow. Like, okay, how do we get there from here? And then we kind of begin to separate. Well, we have this strong vision of what God wants to do, but then we have the reality of what's actually happening, but we sort of separate the two in our minds. And we just don't ever try to bring the two together because they'll actually, they'll actually explode. You know, it's like, in other words, okay. But it's also passion without a plan. In other words, I care about this. I I love Berkeley. I want to see it reached. I want to see the power of God released in this place. But I don't really have a set of steps to do that. 
In other words, I have a vision, I have a passion, but I'm not willing to, in, you know, sort of reverse engineer that passion to a point of a, where I know exactly the steps we're supposed to take to produce the outcome that we're dreaming of. Okay. And then the final thing that I have is it's maintenance without movement. See, most churches that I work with uh, across the board are doing maintenance. In other words, they're not leading. They're not actually uh, going towards a goal together, but they're actually maintaining a status quo, which is decent. It's not, it's not terrible. They love Jesus. They're worshiping him. They're bringing him honor and glory at, at a certain level. But are we maximizing the impact that we could be having if we were really following and walking fully in the ways of Jesus? Okay, so the second one then is factory church because I guess about maybe 40, 50 years ago, people began to see the problem of fantasy church and they said, we've got to do something about it. I don't know how many of you read Coleman's book called uh, God's Master Plan for Evangelism. It was written in the, the 50s or 60s and it's, it's one of those seminal books that everybody sort of cites as, you know, the, basically his statement is, Jesus had one plan for changing the world and there was no plan B. And that is he poured his life into 12 guys. Okay, and I'm going to elaborate on that a little bit more today, but the idea is, is that Factory Church was therefore a frustration about the existing fantasy church reality, but then basically an imposition of a set of principles and methodologies that were based on an understanding of discipleship that was a little faulty. And so they began to structure church to try to produce a result. They tried to, in a sense, make it a methodological achievement. And so there were different small group movements. There was different discipleship plans. There was different outreach and, and evangelism initiatives that were engaged. But many times it ended up simply being a factory effort. What factory church is, is it's a wineskin without the wine. So you can build a good structure. In fact, there's many organizations that are not Christian that actually have better structures and produce their results better than some Christian churches do. You guys understand that? There are certain clubs and certain, you know, rotaries and the Masons and all these different groups that accomplish certain things, and, and they don't have the Holy Spirit. But they're able to achieve it simply on the basis of human engineering, which is awesome. I love human engineering, but we have to be careful because there's a problem with factory church is that ultimately it grinds up people. And it ultimately produces burnout, and it produces brokenness, and it produces disillusionment in people if we're not careful. And so I know that there, around the world there are many churches that are doing church as a factory. See, when I was first a believer uh, in the Jesus movement, guess what happened? There was a group of guys that came together and said, wait a minute, this whole, uh, this whole harvest is out of control. We need to institute what, what they call shepherding. Anybody heard of shepherding? It was a doctrine that occurred around the 70s that basically your pastor became, in a sense, the, the boss of your life. And everything had to be submitted. Where you work, where you go to school, who you're going to marry, it all had to be submitted to your shepherd. And the shepherd controlled you. Now that's an example of factory church where there's so much control, there's so much manipulation, there's so much uh, forcing of outcome that it actually produces a reverse result. And that's not just charismatic churches. I mean, all kinds of churches can fall into the pattern of a factory church if they're not careful, okay? And so what I want to look at is it's the wineskin without the wine. It's duty without delight. See, one of the biggest challenges in our generation, especially with the emergence of the millennial generation, is that we, need, we can no longer use duty as our primary motivator. Now, I, I happen to be, I, I'm just, I'm actually watching a band of brothers 
you know, sort of reviewing it again. It's just this amazing series about the World War II generation. And, and people call them the, the greatest generation, you know, because there, there was such a sense of duty to be fulfilled. Like people gave up their lives, they gave up their limbs to defeat this evil, you know, uh, national socialism that was being the, the Nazism. And, uh, but it was a duty-driven thing. But our culture now, is duty is almost a, a non-motivator. It's almost a negative motivator. We, and so I believe it's necessary for us to understand the power of delight as a motivator in our generation. And I believe that ultimately Factory Church motivates you should be doing this. And if you really love the Lord, you would actually be helping out today. And if you, you know, it's, it's basically using other means of controlling people and making them do what they do. Okay. And then the final one, it's this organization above individual. Okay. And, and I believe that, unfortunately, a lot of the church is in this place, you guys. And I think at times I've fallen into it as well, where I led in such a way that I put the well-being of the organization above the well-being of the individual. And I believe that God is saying, you know what? No more. We need to do church differently. And that's where I began to develop this idea of family church. Because it's weird, because I, I go around and I, I ask a lot of churches, like, well, what are you, what are you building? What's in your heart? What is God saying to you? And almost every church I go to, without exception, whether they're, whether they're a fantasy church or a factory church or some attempted family church, they'll all say, oh, we're a family. And we want to do family together. And I say, well, well help me to understand, what do you mean by family? And usually what they'll say is something like this. Family is a safe place to belong. Which is not a bad answer but it's a very incomplete answer. Because my usual response is, yeah, if you're six months old. <laughs> In other words, for a six-month-old baby, family is only a safe place to belong. It's a place of provision. It's a place of protection. It's a place with no expectations, no demands. In other words, I want to pour in, and I've had seven six-month-old babies. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's, just this, there's this interesting fusion of del delight and, and duty that comes when you're getting up at three in the morning to change a dirty diaper and you somehow get your hands stuck in the poop and it's all over your butt. You know, it's like there's, there's an interesting relationship between duty and delight. It's like where, you know, when you get that thing on your, you know, that spit up on your, and it's a badge of honor. It's like you can walk around with a sense of like, woo, you know. It's duty and delight coming together. Okay. But the issue is, is that, is that family church is more than simply a safe place to belong. Because the purpose of family is more than just keeping you safe. In fact, for a real family church to take place, it has to be a little dangerous. It has to be a little challenging. It has to be a little stressful. It has to be a little dynamic. And I'm going to talk about this, and that's what the whole seminar tonight is about, is that family church is actually individual above organization. And I'll explain that in a few minutes. It's, it's development above delegation. Now, I believe in delegation. I believe that a healthy church must delegate and must raise up others to be able to perform functions. But the question is, if that's all I'm doing, I'm leading a factory church. If I'm not developing you as my primary goal and delegation is a means of development, then I'm actually creating a system where you're serving me and I'm not serving you. And that's called factory. Okay? And so this is where it gets a little bit interesting because... There's a point at which family and factory can look very similar. Like, you know, 5.45 in the evening when you have guests coming over at 6.15 and the house is still a mess. 
There's a moment at which you say, I don't care about your feelings. We're going to get this house clean, kids. Everybody, you know, pick up a broom and start working, okay? There's moments where family and factory can look almost identical. But they're truly a watershed difference between the two. You guys know what a watershed is? Okay, if you think of the Rocky Mountains, is a water, it's the biggest watershed we have in our continent. But the Rocky Mountains is a place where every drop of water that falls on this side will go into the Atlantic from your angle, and every drop that falls on this side will go into the Pacific. In other words, it, it, it may look very similar at the top, and you can't really tell one side from the other, but the end result of both sides is extremely different. And so as people building church, we want to do church as a family. We want to understand what the family is all about, and we want to be able to maximize the impact of family, but in order to do so, we need to go a little deeper and understand what family is. So let's get into Scripture for a moment. Open your Bibles with me to um, Ephesians chapter 3. But um, ultimately, family church also, the last point there is that diversity and unity equals synergy. You guys know what synergy is, right? Anybody have a definition they want to shout out? Okay, yeah. Okay, that's, that's the most simple and excellent definition. One plus one equals three. Or as the scripture put, puts it, one shall chase a thousand, two shall chase ten thousand. In other words, or the, 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 te- the technical definition is this, that the, that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. You add one plus one plus one plus one plus one, it equals ten. Because there's something that happens in the dynamic of different parts coming together and working in harmony that produces an outcome that's greater than any single part can produce by itself or the cumulative effort of all those parts. And I believe that that's one of the effects, one of the beautiful benefits of doing church as family is that we actually get to experience the synergy at a maximized level. Okay, but let's look at this passage together, if you will. So we're going to the next slide, which is the biblical basis for understanding church as a family. See, I believe that God is into family. In fact, I believe that family is so much in the heart of God that we sometimes even mistake it. We don't quite get it. But look at this, look at this passage with me. One of the biggest challenges of preaching is turning in your Bible while you're actually talking. So here we are. All right. So it says this. Verse 14, I'm sorry, I I wrote 15. It says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. In other words, there's a family, and that family is in heaven and on earth. And of course, we we think about the Trinity as a in a sense as a family. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's some sort of you know, individual but combined dynamic within the Godhead that we don't fully comprehend, but we get it. You know, it's, it's like, it's this, a little bit of a picture. But then as we go into looking at, let's say, the other creatures up there, like the seraphim and the cherubim and the, those weird people with all the eyes all over their body, and, you know, it freaks me out. You know, if, if, if I saw one of those guys, I'd probably lose my, you know, waffles. But, but here's the thing is... Um, we have to think about this because I think God considers them all part of his family somehow. There's a family in heaven, you guys. In fact, I don't think family would exist on earth except it first existed in heaven. Do you ever think about this? That family is the only human institution that existed before sin. Because God developed family first. 
But then we have the great cloud of witnesses in heaven. We have all those who have gone before us, men and women of faith who have walked out their faith in a powerful way. They're part of the family in heaven. So the whole family in heaven and on earth. So the family on earth obviously includes the biological family, but it goes beyond the biological family because he's clearly talking about the spiritual family that we are a family on earth as well. And so look what he says about this family, which is so beautiful. He says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. In other words, the family of heaven and on earth is first and foremost above all things rooted in love that we would have a revelation of this love that we'd be strengthened in the inner man by this love that the love that God has for within the Godhead and then beyond the Godhead to the family in heaven and beyond the family in heaven to the family on earth is that this is the picture the quintessential picture of who we are as a spiritual community together it's so awesome you guys and then he goes on. I mean, it just, it just keeps going. He says that we would know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says, Now unto him who is able exceedingly able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory, where? In the church, his family. We're the spiritual family. Unto him be glory in the church, both now and evermore. In other words, God created a family on earth so that all of us could be part of this amazing community of love that would continually radiate thanksgiving and praise and goodness back to the one who made us and that we would be a living representation of the reality of heaven because of the love that we live in for one another. It's just awesome. So let's just look at family a little bit more closely in terms of uh, Genesis one twenty six. Just flip there with me really quickly because God makes everything at that moment, <clears throat> depending on how you see the creation story, but he, he declares everything to be good, but then he gets to Adam and he says, that ain't good. What did he say? Well, it's, it's not good that he should be alone. And rather than creating some independent, separate reality, he actually took something from Adam you know, and formed. In, in a sense, what he did was he took the one and he made the one two. And then from the two, he brings them back together and this dynamic thing happens, which is the conception and birthing of new life. And so the two produce family. That happened in creation. Reminds me of a story where God came to Adam and said, well, or Adam came to God and said, you know, can you give me a wife? And God said, well, it's going to cost you an arm and a leg. And he said, what can I get for a rib? Anyway, <laughs> just, just a little sexist joke while we're in Berkeley, just to be a little bit un-PC. All right, so, but creation. Okay, look at this. And then God turns to Adam and Eve together, and he says to them, he says to them, be fruitful. Come on, you guys. Multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. 
In other words, God's plan, God's methodology in creation was to create family. And that family had four distinct commandments attached to it. We, I would call it, like in Star Trek language, the prime directive. Okay, God gave a prime directive to humanity to be fruitful, which means that we're successful in all that we do, to multiply, which means have babies. I mean, that's specifically what he was talking about at that moment. Have babies, and that's why my wife and I had seven. Um, we wanted to do our part, you know, for, for God's purposes. And then, and, then, and then fill the earth. And guess what? We kind of did it. And here we are sitting on the very edge of the West Coast, about as far in this direction as you can go, and here we are, you know, doing kingdom here. Fill the earth and then bring it under God's loving dominion to subdue the earth as stewards of the earth on his behalf. That was the purpose of family and creation. It was God's methodology for bringing his rule and reign through the stewardship of those he created to this planet. Okay, but you know what happened? Sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, that created a real crisis because a curse was released and there was separation. There was separation between humanity and God. There was separation between man and woman. That woman you gave me made me do it. And then there was separation between the generations, the parents and the sons. There was separation from brother to brother. And you track that separation through up to even, even uh, Genesis 11 where there was a horrible separation between the races where, where God basically confused the tongues and had everybody basically, you know, Tribalize and then move around the world in such a way that created the racial issues that we're still struggling with today. You know, that God, that sin is very, very costly, you guys. It was very, very painful to the heart of God. And it was very, very costly to the heart of God. But God wasn't phased. God set in motion a redemptive plan. What was his methodology in that redemptive plan? It's called family. Because he chose a guy named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And he said, Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a baby. But first of all, I want you to leave where you are. I want you to come into this new land I'm going to show you. And then you're, through your seed, through your child, your offspring, every single nation of the world will be blessed. Isn't that awesome? So God's plan in redemption and his methodology was family. That through his seed, of course, you know what happened. It's like 10 years pass, no baby. 15 years pass, no baby. 20 years pass, no baby. Roughly 25 years pass, and God changes his name. From Abram, which means father, to father of many nations. Can you imagine Sarah calling her husband for dinner? Father, time for dinner. Everybody says, yeah, right, father. <laughs> yeah, it's been 25 years. He doesn't have any kids, right? And then God changes his name. Father of many nations, time for dinner. Seriously. And then finally, the angel appears, the Lord appears in Christological manifestation and says, it's time. You're going to have a baby. And Isaac is born. See, family. Now, Isaac wasn't the answer. Isaac was one step in the answer, and then Isaac had a son, and then his son had 12 sons, and 12 sons became 70 people, and a famine entered the land. Those 70 people went down into Egypt, and they were there for 430 years, and at the end of that time, they came out of Egypt as two and a half million people. 
And now they were ready to fulfill the plan. But that still wasn't the plan. Moses gets the law on the mountain. They finally take possession of the land under Joshua's leadership. And then there begins to be these prophecies coming that someday that God himself is going to manifest himself in your midst. It was called Messiah or Mashiach, that the Mashiach would come. And there was these different hints about it, that, that it actually even happened back in Genesis, that you shall bruise the enemy's heel. It happened a little bit later in the, in the life of Abraham and Sarah. It happened a little bit later in the life of Moses, where Moses, God said, a prophet will be raised up like unto you. Okay, Moses said that like unto me. And then you have David beginning to prophesy about Messiah. And then you have Isaiah. And then it starts getting crystal clear. In Isaiah chapter 9 where he says, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and his peace. There shall be no end. It's like, whoa. That one is coming. A child is coming. A child. Family. That God's purpose in restoration was a son. Was a son. It's interesting, like when you look at God's purposes throughout the ages through the lens of family. This idea of Jesus saying, I'm the son of God, the son of man. And then he's born and with all the hoopla and the, the uh, angels appearing to the shepherds and the wise men coming and bringing gifts. And then there's 30 years of silence. And then he hits the scene and there's healings, and there's miracles, and there's breakthroughs, and there's you know, storms are calmed and, and uh, food is multiplied. And, and all these amazing teachings come forth from the Son of God. But that wasn't his greatest work. His greatest work was done at the end of his life when he died for all the sins of humanity. Scripture says, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that amazing? And then Jesus dies. But that's not the end of the story. He rises again. And he appears to his disciples for 40 years. And just before, he's about to ascend into heaven at the end of the book of Matthew, which turn there with me really quickly if you can. Because at the very end of the book, we have what is commonly called the Great Commission, which is ultimately what you and I are really living out in our lives right now, is this amazing commission that Jesus gave at the very end of his life. He had five minutes to, to summarize the purpose of his existence and he, he, he hits them so strongly with this one statement. Look at Matthew chapter 28. And he says this, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and have spiritual babies and raise them up and teach them to do everything I have commanded you, including having more spiritual babies. Now that's my paraphrase. But if you look at the Great Commission, it is so similar to the initial prime directive that God gave. He said, he said to them so clearly, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In this case, Jesus is saying, not for that original creation, but for a new creation. All authority is now mine. Go, therefore, and make disciples. 
raise up spiritual sons and daughters into full adulthood and train them well so they can raise up the next generation of sons and daughters and lead them well so they can raise up the next generation of sons and daughters so that the knowledge of the glory of God would fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's what he's after. God's methodology in creation was family. In redemption, it was family. And in the restoration of all things, it's family. But it's no longer primarily biological family now. It's primarily spiritual family. That we are called to create in our congregations family reality. But what's the definition of that family? Is it merely a safe place to belong? Or is it a place where we all work together to sort of, as roommates, to keep our house together? Or is there some other purpose? Is there, is there a bigger overarching thing in the heart of God that needs to be re-examined and re-implemented in order to see the fullness of what the Lord has? That's what I believe family church is all about. So let's um, switch to the next slide there. See, right now, I believe that the earth has been under a curse. And if you want to try to understand the curse that gives birth to war and climate problems and all of the brokenness of our planet, the poverty and the disease and the pain and the injustice, each one of the problems that we're dealing with that most of us are aware of right now in the news and so forth, all of these problems ultimately come back to the initial rejection of God as Father and the release of a spirit or a mindset of orphanhood that has filled our planet. See, I believe that most of us struggle with some degree of orphanhood. My wife and I actually just went through about three weeks ago a week-long intensive healing prayer ministry. We had 12 sessions, three hours long apiece in this amazing process because I'm not, I'm not done yet. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not like Jesus yet. I have way more to grow and way more to learn. And, and one of the biggest breakthroughs of my heart was God exposing some deep roots of orphanhood in my own life. Because most of us have gone through some measure of abandonment in our lives, betrayal and rejection. And most of us lay that back on the Lord and we, we are suspicious and, and sometimes judgmental of God. In fact, one of the things I, I saw through my healing process was certain areas in which I had judged him as unfair, as unkind. Now again, I know the theological statement. I know what to say. I, I'm, not, I'm not an idiot on that front. I can go to church and preach on the goodness of God and the stalwart faithfulness of the Lord and so forth. But deep down in my heart, there was a breach because of some of the pain I've gone through and some of the things I've experienced. My dad was a very, very wicked man. He was an artist, but he was a sex addict. He molested my sister and my brother. He had, you know, there was horrible things. And then my mom lived with a guy in our hippie days who was, who was a, um, an ex-convict who was horribly violent and would beat us just mercilessly. I have scars on my body from his beatings. You know, I had to be there at moments where he was coming at my mom with a knife. And, you know, one night in the middle of the night, we had to leave him because he had threatened her in that way, living on 21st and Castro Street. I didn't have a very good understanding of a father and what a father could be. How about you? 
what was your experience of father? Even some, some of the best fathers. I, I'm, I'm working with a guy right now whose father was a pastor. And he worked for one of the biggest worship ministries in the, in the world. He also worked for one of the greatest evangelists in the world. He was involved in both of these different events. And he loved his family. He was just never home. So this young man has no sense of who, who his gender identity right now because he didn't have the imprint of a father in his life. See, orphanhood takes all kinds of forms, but ultimately the manifestation of it is that we feel like we have to work harder and harder to be approved of and to be accepted. And so we fall into a trap of either performance orientation on the one hand, where our acceptance within the group is determined by our performance and our work, or on the other hand, we reject and become rebellious because we don't want to play the game anymore, and we step aside and become basically focused on me and my and mine and and that's looking out for number one becomes our main goal but whether it's fight or flight the manifestation of orphanhood ultimately does damage in the world and what we see so often across the face of the world is all of these things i mean kim jong-il you know looking at the issues of trump and the right and the left i mean all of it's rooted in brokenness it's rooted in in this this weird um where you know, uh, I think there was a song from The Who long ago that said, meet the old boss and the new boss, same as the old boss. Do you guys see that? It's like, wow, it's like, it doesn't matter whose side you're on because the same brokenness is manifesting. It's just in a flip side way. And it's like, I'm thinking, wait a minute. There's only one solution here. That is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's Jesus because he is the only human being without flaw and without sin. Isn't that awesome? He is that for us. So, the spirit of orphanhood is both the result and the cause of sin. It resulted from sin, but it also has perpetuated sin throughout the generations. But this is where the beauty of the gospel comes in, is that it talks about the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry what? Is there a little sign that says Abba right there? <laughs> Could you hold that up for a second? Hopefully it's a good sign, is it? Okay, Abba. Can you guys just say Abba? It means daddy. Can you say daddy? Papa. Dad. It's like this, this revelation of the beauty of our Heavenly Father that's so personal, like Jesus was saying, yes, I want you to know him. In fact, up till Jesus, there was, there was some revelation of God as Father, but there is nothing compared to the revelation that Jesus brought as God the Son magnifying God the Father to us in a way that is so powerfully converting. It's like, oh, I need. And that spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Daddy. It's necessary. And it's the foundation of family is that each one of us be touched in that spirit of adoption. But the goal of this is that not that we would remain children. The goal is ultimately spiritual adulthood. In other words, this orphan spirit needs to be healed through the spirit of adoption. But once the spirit of adoption has come and is finding its way into our hearts, that spirit of adoption ultimately brings transformation and maturation. And ultimately, that maturity gives birth to the next generation. 
And that's what keeps this thing rolling forward. So let's turn to the next slide. Elements of a true spiritual family. How are we doing? You guys need to stand up and just wiggle a little bit? <laughs> okay. Because now we're going to get down into, well, what makes a family a family? Like, how to shake a leg. Come on. Just like, I'm doing it. Okay. Just stand and stretch a little bit. Because we're, because your pastor, Ryan, said that, uh, that <laughs> I need to just blaze through. I offered a break, but he said, no, we just need, we need content. So let's go for it. So... Come on. But I should probably pull out my Babylonian time device. And uh, it's 841, so we have about 20 minutes left to, to uh, wrap this thing up. But anyway. <laughs> All right. So I believe that, okay, and again, I wasn't the best dad in the world. Let me just be honest with you. If you ask my kids, they say I was. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I, I just celebrated my 60th birthday. And, uh, and all of my, I don't know how many of you saw like uh, two albums ago from, from uh, Bethel Music, but they were up on, a, up on a cliff over the lake. Well, my friend who owns that land gave us his, his house to stay in. And so all my family came and they celebrated me, which was very, very humbling because I know my defects as a father, but I also know how their love for me has covered a multitude of my transgressions, and that's just super gracious, and I'm so happy. But what I've learned in, in years of being a dad, you know, so it's around 40 years of being a father, and uh, seven kids, and now we're empty nesting, and there's nothing better than empty nesting, you guys. <laughs> it's like, seriously, I mean, my wife and I, you know, we had basically kids from day one, so it was like, you know, we were parents all the way through, and now it's like, wow, we're honeymooners, you know? It's really fun, you know? But um, anyway, it's, <laughs> I'm in love, but uh, so we just moved out of our big house with a pool into a tiny little apartment so we can start traveling together more. We really have a vision to start working more closely in ministry together. And now that the kids are gone, we can, you know, our differentiation of duties can now come back together, right? Anyway, but these five elements that I want to talk about for a few minutes, I believe are super essential to understanding family. And they somewhat follow a developmental process. In other words, when a baby is born, the key issue in a baby is identity. We want to be able to actually create a safe place to belong. We want a baby to feel absolutely loved, absolutely cared for, absolutely covered. We want to instill within them absolute security. So when somebody comes to Christ as a new baby in Christ, we want to come around them as the family of God and enfold them, and we want to be able to administer to them the truth of who they are in Christ and who Christ is in them. Because that's the foundation of identity. Who are they in Christ? And there's many incredible passages. I mean, one of my favorite passages is Ephesians chapter 1, where it just begins with, you know, blessed be the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Do you realize you were chosen before the foundations of the world? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. I mean, just that those few verses alone are enough to, I mean, that's just phenomenal. That's who you are. That's who I am. You're a good, good father. That's 
who you are, and I'm loved by you. That's who I am. I mean, isn't that awesome, you guys? So identity is crucial. You know, it's interesting because a lot of the brain science that's been going on, that we've been, I actually talked about somebody with, talked to somebody about this earlier, but the brain science that's going on actually has proven that when a parent walks into a room and the baby's in the crib and their eyes are open and the parent lights up, that there's actually a portion of the brain that grows as a result of that interaction, seeing the delight in their parents' eyes actually grow because there's a sense of belonging, like you are mine, I am yours, and I celebrate you. And when that delight happens, it actually grows a portion of the brain that if that portion of the brain does not grow, you're like 10 times more likely to have an addictive personality. And so there's actually brain science right now that's going in healing people from addiction through the communication of love and delight because they're actually seeing that they can actually regrow that portion of the brain, even if you're 40 years old and you hadn't had it grown. That's identity. It's knowing who you are. I am loved. And then all of a sudden, as you grow a little bit older, they start to use your name. And you start to recognize your name. And then you start to recognize your family name. And you know that you belong in this group. And that's all part of identity. You're being told who I am and how I fit. And that is so essential in every single one of us as church that we need to be able to communicate that to each other, that you are awesome, that you are amazing, that if you fall down and stub your toe, hey, you know, you, you bruise your knee, that's okay. We love you. There's room for growth here, you know? So identity is crucial. But then once you get to be about two years old, you got to start learning community. Like I have my, one of my uh, grandsons right now is learning that. Like he just went to his first day of preschool and everything was his. He didn't want to share with anybody. And so you have to know, hey, wait a minute, you're part of a bigger group, and that means you share, and you don't bite. Because we did get a report that he bit somebody, and that's not really cool, you know? And then, and then you have to learn how to resolve conflict. And so part of what we teach as church, as family, is first of all, we teach identity. This is who you are. But secondly, we, we teach community. How do we get along how do we encourage one another? How do we walk together? How do we resolve conflict? How do we process life together? How do we ask for forgiveness? How do we release forgiveness? How do we walk through the processes of, of real community reality? And so community is how to relate to others, peers, leaders, and sons. Relating to leaders, that you need to honor your parents. Now, my, my, my wife was hanging out with our three-year-old grandson and uh, washing our car. And, uh, and he, he wanted to do something his way, and she said no, and he slugged her. That's not, how, that's not how you treat people that are your leaders. And I've been a leader for a long time, and I've been slugged a few times. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm not saying I didn't deserve it, but um, anyway, so identity is crucial, community is crucial, but then there's maturity. Okay, how do we teach maturity? Do you realize that the goal of parenting is not to raise a child? It's to raise an adult. The goal of church as a family is not to keep everybody as well-cared-for children. And your responsibility as a member of any church, because I know we're not just representing this church here, is that you, it's your responsibility to become the next generation of spiritual adults. That requires maturity. And what is maturity? Anybody want to venture a definition? You think of it, it's like, you know, we have these ideas in our mind, 
I mean, probably one of the simple ones is that I no longer only think about myself, but I start thinking about others. Okay, that's maturity. I'm no longer the sun in the middle of my personal solar system. <laughs> but Jesus now is my sun, and I'm just one of the planets going around him. Okay, that's lordship. And I believe that you cannot really mature in Christ unless you've not only accepted Jesus as your Savior, but as your Lord as well. In other words, he's got to become the one who ultimately is the boss of your life. Saying it in a crass way. That's one mark of maturity. You know, there's other marks of maturity, though. I think one of the marks of maturity is the ability to process your pain in the presence of God without either becoming a victim or a rebel. How many of us actually either stuff our stuff or we, or we cope by drink or by entertainment or by some other means and never process the real things we're feeling with the one who loves us most. So we never go to him in the midst of a heartbreak or we never go to him in, in a work disappointment or we never go to him when we feel like we've been rebuffed by somebody. We don't process with him. But if you read the Psalms, David was all about processing. And sometimes he, he gets away with saying stuff I'd be af afraid to say. But he says it. And then at the end, he comes out with praise because he processes his pain. I believe that true maturity processes in the presence of God. So another definition of maturity is, is the ability to give up present pleasure for love. So he says about Jesus, I don't think about present pleasure. I'm like, I don't care. Okay, where they basically took a bunch of kids and sat them down and, and put a marshmallow in front of them. And then the, the moderator said, okay, I'm going to leave the room. You can eat the marshmallow anytime you want. But if I come back and the marshmallow's still there, I'm going to give you two marshmallows. And so he walks out, dies in front of everyone, comes back in, half the marshmallows are gone, and the other half remain because he wanted to give them two marshmallows. And you know what? That's okay. But the real cool thing was they sat through church for like the next 20 years or 15 years. And they actually found out that the kids that left their marshmallow in between two were better at school, they had better jobs at an earlier age, they were able to make more money, their marriages worked out better. In almost every single measurable area of life, they were more effective because they were able to say no to present pleasure and say yes to long-term gain. Maturity is important. And part of what we need to do as pastors and leaders in the church and spiritual mothers and fathers, which I hope all of you are growing into, is that we need to help those that are younger to be able to come into a place of spiritual maturity. And sometimes that means that we have to say, buck it up. You know, we have to say, you know what? Suffering's good for you sometimes. In fact, what God is working inside of you, in fact, the scripture says it. Think it not strange the fiery trial is testing you at this moment because the testing of your faith produces gold. But we don't say that. We say, oh, po, 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 there, 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 there. let me help you. Here, I'll take away your pain. No, sometimes pain is important in the growth process. And so how do we do that? How do we help our spiritual children to grow into mature adults? We cannot shield them as many parents in the natural or want to do right now in creating a spoiled generation. We have to help grow people up. And so that's why sometimes the scripture says we have to speak the truth in love. We have to tell people the truth sometimes. And that actually saying no to that sin issue is good for you. See, sometimes we're trying to heal a sin problem. That's not the solution for sin. Repentance is the solution for sin, right? In fact, if you're taking notes, there's five things that I usually deal with when I'm trying to mature somebody that helps me diagnose what issue it is and what kind of treatment they need. And the first, and they all start with W's, by the way, because so, I'm a pastor and I believe in alliteration. All right. So 
But the first one is wiring, wounding, will, warfare, and then whatever. Okay? So, so as you're discerning what's wrong with a person, what they're struggling with, the first one I look at is wiring. Are you wired to be more quiet or more outward? Or, you know, are you, are you introverted? Or are you, let's say, more creative, artistic? Or are you more intellectual? Are you wired a certain way? What are your gift mix? I'm looking at, you know, are you apostolic or prophetic? Or I'm looking at these different things to see how you're wired because that will help me know how to steer you in my parental role in the development of your life. But I'm looking at wiring, but then I'm also looking at wounding because sometimes we end up making choices in life on the basis of how we've been hurt. And really, it's not what hurts you that hurts you. It's how you respond to what hurts you that actually hurts you. Do you guys understand that? And so we need to be able to process our pain effectively. And so, but, but some people are trying to basically, you know, rewire a wounding and that creates confusion and, and chaos in a person's life. No, the, the process of, of wounding is usually a process of healing, which includes offering forgiveness to the one who hurt you. But then there's will, and will's a whole other issue. Will is where you make choices, and those choices can damage you. And you can't get healed of your choices. You have to repent of bad choices. Repentance is the solution for that particular ailment. And then there's warfare, where you have to stand and resist the enemy, and he'll flee from you. And then there's whatever, which, you know, is a kind of the catch-all for everything else, which includes like chemical imbalance or physiological problems or other kinds of things that you, that aren't accounted for in the other one. But as I'm looking at somebody and, and weighing the issues in their life, I want to help them grow. So I want, to, I want to provide the right solution for the right problem. So as a spiritual doctor, I'm looking at what is the issue here because wiring can be grown beyond, but it takes intentional growth process. Wounding can be healed. Will can be repented. Warfare can be resisted. But each one is a different solution for a different issue. Okay, so, but here's the next one, which gets us down to where this is the issue of responsibility. I do not believe that you can be a good parent without giving your sons and daughters responsibility. And this is where the delegation issue comes in, which we were talking about with Suki and, and, um, and Ryan a little bit earlier. Delegation is important. Not because I need you to do my job for me. In fact, let me tell you a quick story. I have a 25, 26-year-old right now, and when he was about 22, he came up to me and said, Dad, you and Mom used to tell a joke that really hurt my feelings. And I said, oh, son, I'm so sorry. What was it? He said, well, you used to tell a joke about the kids that you had to help you with that particular project. And Dad, you said to me, you said, honey, had kids for as if when I saw my wife across the room and I saw whoa she is awesome she's gonna make me the best dishwasher in the whole world I'm gonna I'm gonna pursue this woman I'm gonna marry her I'm gonna conceive a child with her and then we're gonna just foster that little dishwashing gift until it's like no I didn't have my son in order to, for him to do my dishes that's ridiculous you know it's like it's, it's really idiotic on the other hand, if I don't have him do my dishes, that's a form of child abuse. Because if I don't train him how to do the dishes, he will never become the man he's supposed to be. See, I don't believe that you can ever disciple somebody in a vacuum. I don't believe you can disciple somebody in a classroom. Discipleship takes life on life, working together in the kingdom. And that's the kingdom activity is what forces the real issues of a person's life to the surface so that you can really actually disciple them. So I, I, I just, 
will refuse to pour into somebody's life unless they're serving. And if you don't trust my motives there, then serve somewhere else. But I want to see what you're serving because I cannot mature you into the fullness of who Christ created you to be as a good spiritual father unless you're serving somehow, someone somehow. Okay, this is so crucial, you guys. And so this is what I did with all my kids. I'd get them at three years old, get them into their room and say, it's time to clean up your toys. My kids would say, I don't want to clean up my toys. No, it's time to clean up your toys. And I'll sit with them for a half an hour while I'm wrestling with them to get them to clean up their toys when I could have done it in five minutes. But the reason I sit with them is because if I don't teach them how to clean up their toys when they're three years old, they're not going to make their bed when they're five. They're not going to do their homework when they're seven. They're not going to clear the table when they're nine. They're not going to mow the lawn at 12. They're not, probably not going to drive a car at 16. They're not going to finish high school. And if they do, they're probably not going to finish college. And I'll end up with a 30-year-old sitting in my basement playing video games in his underwear with his belly hairs hanging out. And you laugh. But in reality, that's most of our churches. So we have believers who have been believers for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And their best years were year one and two. And after that, they plateaued, and then they just slowly declined over the years because they never had a spiritual mother and father help them grow into true spiritual maturity and fruitfulness in Christ. On the other hand, I do believe that delegation without development is a form of spiritual abuse. In other words, if I did just force my kids to do all this work around my house, but I never poured my heart into them, then I'm really betraying them as a dad. So I believe that delegation and development must go together. I believe that the modern vernacular and translation of, what's, of what real discipleship is all about, discipleship is people development. We take spiritual infants and we grow them into spiritual adults, and that is family. And after we teach them a whole lifelong process of responsibility and growth and responsibility, that's when we can finally put them on the launching pad of their destiny and send them forth. And, and many of them will never leave our churches, but they'll be sent into higher and higher levels of service, either within the marketplace, within the campus, or even within our churches because we've done the job of excellent spiritual parenting. And my goal then is to actually release them to parent the next generation. And that's where the Great Commission finally finds its full fruitfulness. So let's just wrap up with that and then we'll close. So turn back if you haven't done it. I'll take about five more minutes. It's nine o'clock right now, but look at Matthew 28 again. All authority is given to me. See, I think it's just so beautiful that whatever authority was lost in the fall and whatever authority had been contested by the enemy throughout the ages was now completely back under the dominion of Jesus. What he accomplished on the cross was so perfectly done, so absolutely sufficient that all authority now belongs to Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean there's not a criminal walking around, but he has no authorization to be that criminal. You guys understand that? The enemy still is looking like a roaring lion, but he has no authority at all to do it. I believe that the authority that you even find in the book of Job no longer exists because I believe that it was canceled at the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't believe the enemy has any longer a right to stand before God and accuse us, but he's accusing us to one another now 
because of what Jesus accomplished. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's a done deal. Okay, however, okay, however, all authority is given to me. Therefore, on the basis of that reality, you go, each one of us. Do you realize that a horse and a donkey can mate? You guys know that? And what do they produce? A mule, right? But mules are sterile. Do you realize that most of the discipleship that goes on in our churches produces mules? They can carry a load, but they can't reproduce. See, the goal of spiritual family is reproduction. We want the next generation to be not only saved, but developed into the fullness of Christ and be better than we were beforehand. And then we go to the next generation and see that generation even be more pure and more godly and more devoted to Jesus than the one before it because we're learning how to do church as a family and we're raising up one another in an atmosphere of love but with a sense of intentionality. The goal of spiritual parenting is not to raise a child. And I think so many of the mistakes that we make in the church is because we're raising spiritual children. But let's, let's finish this up. So he says this, go and make disciples. In other words, have spiritual babies and then start to raise them. How do we raise them? Well, the first step is to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then the next step is to teach them identity, community, maturity, responsibility and destiny we teach them these different elements to bring them into a place of full adulthood in Christ so they can be parents of the next generation okay but let's stop with this what does it mean to be baptized in the name of the father obviously we know the baptism of water and, and I'm, I believe that that's what he primarily meant here but let me take it in a little bit of an angle as we close the word baptized means to be immersed, to be fully dunked, to be marinated, okay? You know, marinating a big hunk of juicy uh, vegetables. And because uh, we're in Berkeley, you know? It's like, come on. Actually, I was a vegan before they called it vegan back in the day, but they called it Arnold, Arnold Eretz Mucusless Diet Healing System. Anyway, I'm not kidding you. Um, <clears throat> But baptized in the name of the Father. Do you know the word name? In the, that, that in Hebrew culture, the name was the identity. See, I believe that what Jesus is saying by extension is he wants every single son and daughter in the family of God to be immersed in the identity of the Father and to be immer immersed in the identity of the Son and to be immersed I think the mission of the Son, the identity of the Son, that He came, God so loved that He gave. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I believe that we're embracing that identity. We're being immersed in the identity of Christ, the name of Christ. I think the Holy Spirit, we're learning how to walk in His presence and how to celebrate His gifting and how to walk in the gifting. But because we're talking about family today, I want to focus in our closing prayer on being immersed in the identity of the Father. So can you stand with me as we close?
There's so much more to be said on this, you guys. Um, we just did a master class for pastors. About 30, 40 pastors were online. And I did, I think, about two hours, actually more like three hours of teaching on this, this subject, you guys. Um, but close your eyes with me for a moment. We want to grow in our understanding of church as a family. More than simply a place to belong, but it's a place to become. To become everything that Jesus created us to be. And the fruitfulness of that becoming ultimately is giving birth to the next generation. We're raising those infants into toddlers and those toddlers into children and those children into adolescents in the spirit and then the adolescents into young adults and then ultimately walking them down the aisle as they conceive the next generation. But in order for that to happen, we need to be immersed in the identity of the Father. So right now, just present yourself to Him. Just present yourself to Him. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but today we come before you as our Heavenly Father. And we just expose, Lord, before you areas of orphanhood in our lives, areas of insecurity, areas of self-will, self-centeredness, areas where we want our own life and we want you to, areas where we play games or areas where we're pursuing things for the wrong reasons. Lord, we ask you to come as our Heavenly Father and be our dad right now. Wrap your arms around us and point us in the way we should go, Lord. Lord, you said in your word that like arrows in the quiver of a man, so are the children of his youth. And he shoots them further than he could ever go by himself. Lord, let us be those kinds of spiritual fathers and mothers in this room, Lord. Let us raise up a generation. Let us not be like mules, Lord, that are, can carry a load but we can't reproduce. But, Father, let this church be a church that actually reproduces. Sons and daughters, infants, Lord, that we can raise up from Berkeley, Lord, men and women of this town who become born again by the by the incredible work of your Holy Spirit within them, and then are raised as infants into full maturity, and then sent forth to bring transformation to the world around us. Lord, let us learn to do church as family. And I just want to close also just by praying for these two, just as a, like a symbol in a sense. Can you guys just extend your hand to Ryan and Suki, Lord, and, and we just thank you for them. Lord, we thank you so much that as they are ordained by you to be the mom and dad of this house, we just ask for grace. And even as they're growing in their natural parenting, Lord, that you would grow them as spiritual parents, that you would give them the ability to impact every member of this congregation in such a way that each one grows up, that we would grow up into him in all things who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and joined together by that which every joint supplies would walk in the love and the growth of your kingdom. So Lord, bless this man and this woman. I pray that you would just give them grace 
to give away spiritual motherhood and fatherhood to others in this church. And Lord, as they do, Lord, that you would begin to expand the influence of this congregation, even as you already have, but into the campus in a deeper way, into the marketplace in a deeper way, into the neighborhoods in a deeper way, and that you would have your way through the ARC Ministries, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, God bless you guys. Thanks for hanging out.